Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we explore the dynamics of relations between Japan and South Korea. Japan and South Korea, two democracies in Northeast Asia, both longtime U.S. treaty allies, both technological and innovative powerhouses with global cultural reach. Natural comrades, right? In truth, Japanese-South Korean relations have rarely lived up to their potential, despite an alignment on a range of global problems and shared values. Why? Legacy issues shape their relationship and represent a source of consistent friction. Events from 1910 to the end of World War II, the period when Imperial Japan occupied Korea, place a persistent damper on the relationship and affect people-to-people perceptions in both countries. This includes security collaboration, even with the specter of the North Korean threat evident for both. But time has slowly brought change. During the administration of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Japan has sought to move past these issues, reaching an agreement with former President Park Geun-hye's administration over the comfort women issue, including funding for reparations. The two sides also concluded an information and intelligence sharing agreement after several false starts. To gain insight on the complicated nature of Japan-South Korea ties, we sat down with Dr. Junya Nishino, a 2017 CSIS Strategic Japan Fellow who teaches at Keio University in Japan. You'll also hear from CSIS Korea Chair Fellow Lisa Collins. Lisa explains the divergences between Tokyo and Seoul in their strategic approach to Beijing and discusses the impact the new administration in the Blue House may have on South Korea's approach to Japan. To begin, we asked Dr. Nishino to explain the historical backdrop that shapes the trilateral relationship between Japan, Korea, and the United States, and also examine how the relationship has changed since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to the conversation. Uh, so, uh, let's start with the historical background of, uh, of the Trilateral Corporation. Uh, Japan's security tie with ROK, South Korea, has been structuralized through the U.S.-Japan security relationship since 1950, when the Korean War broke out. Japan has played a critical role in providing real area logistic support to the U.S. force. The note exchanged between Prime Minister Yoshida and State Secretary Dean Natson in 1951 when signing the U.S.-Japan Treaty, Security Treaty and the Status of Force Agreement, so-called SOFR, with the United Nations Force in 1954 have been basis for Japan's support in contingency on the Korean Peninsula. So using the basis in Japan will be essential for the U.S to effectively execute its military operations during contingencies on the peninsula. So even after the armistice of the Korean War in 1953, there has been continued recognition of the importance of Japan as a major operating base during contingencies on the Korean peninsula. So after the Cold War, since the 1990s, Japan has needed to prepare more seriously for the for a crisis on the Korean Peninsula because of the growing North Korean missile and the nuclear threat. To address the new security environment surrounding Japan after the Cold War, the Prime Minister Ryutaro Hashimoto and President, Re- President Bill Clinton released the Japan-US Joint Declaration on Security in April 1996. This document stated that U.S.-Japan defense cooperation would not be limited 
to a bilateral partnership, but would also include cooperation at the regional and global levels. It also set forth a plan to revise the guideline for US-Japan defense cooperation that has been formulated in 1978. The declaration constituted a de facto decision to the effect that Japan would support the US military during contingencies on the Korean Peninsula. So it was thus a major turning point for Japanese defense policy. The 1997 defense guideline specified that Japan would provide the US military via area support, including supply, transport, maintenance, medical service, security, and communication. So Japan also started to cultivate bilateral security cooperation with South Korea to cope with the North Korean nuclear crisis in the 1990s. Japan and ROK have made progress in confidence building by promoting bilateral military exchanges, while historical issues have become growing between the two countries since the 1990s. Actually, the year 1998 was a historic moment for Japan-ROK relations. Prime Minister Keizo Obuchi and President Kim Dae-jun declared a new partnership in the joint declaration in October 1998. Prime Minister Obuchi expressed his deep remorse and heartfelt apology for his nation's wartime past, while President Kim Dae-jun accepted Obuchi's apology and showed high appreciation for the role that Japan contributed as a peaceful and stable member of the post-war international community. The two leaders welcomed the security dialogue as well as defense exchanges at various levels between the two countries and decided to further strengthen them. The Tokyo and the Seoul also shared the value on the importance of both countries to steadfastly maintain their security arrangement with the United States while at the same time, further strengthening efforts on multilateral dialogue or peace and stability of the Asian Pacific region in the joint declaration. So especially to address the North Korean issue, Japan and ROK realize the cross-policy coordination with the United States through the Trilateral Coordination and Oversight Group, so-called TCOC, between 1998 to 2003. So that was the really heyday of trilateral cooperation among the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. However, beyond the umbrella of trilateral cooperation, Japan and Korea's approaches to other strategic challenges have diverged. We asked Nishino-san to explain how they differ in their approach to neighboring power China. He argues differences in their strategic outlook have had a destabilizing influence on relations between Tokyo and Seoul. Uh, at this point, uh, different, different perspective on the light of China has have destabilized relations between Tokyo and Seoul and made it difficult for the two countries to cooperate more on various issues in East Asia. Japan views China as a military threat in part due to the Senkaku Island issue, while South Korea had seemingly begun to view Japan's security posture vis-a-vis China as a destabilizing factor in the region. Historically, South Korea's long-held fear has been that the power struggle between Japan and China will escalate into a regional matter 
requiring souls involvement. In Japan, ROK opinion poll conducted by the Genlon NPO in Japan and East Asia Institute in South Korea, uh, July last year, the top respondents in Japan on the country you feel poses a military threat was China, 80%, followed by the North Korea, 72%. Why? Respondents in the ROK put the North Korea, 84%, first, and Japan, 33%, second, and China, 36%, the third. So another opinion poll, when asked which do you consider more important for your country, the United States or China, in a joint opinion poll conducted by Yomiuri Shinbun and Hankook Ilbo last year, April, the Japanese heavily favored the United States, 75% over China, 15%, while South Koreans were nearly evenly split between the United States, 49%, and China, 44%. So, in sum, different assessments of present, present and future China are causing a divergence in security policy between Japan and ROK, and at the same time, encouraging kind of mutual distrust. So, different perceptions of strategic environment have generated a serious divergence between Japanese and South Korean strategic policy. Recently, China has applied economic pressure to South Korea over a joint decision with the United States to deploy the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, or THAAD, missile defense system on the peninsula. We asked Lisa Collins if this would change the regional strategic calculus. So I'd like to start off by saying that I do agree with Dr. Nishino's assessment that Japan's strategic calculus with regard to China is different than that of South Korea. I think that that just means that naturally there will be some friction in the relationship going forward. But first of all, it's important to understand that South Korea's economy depends extensively on Chinese trade. Uh, China is South Korea's largest trading partner, and their economic relationship is worth about $300 billion. And then second of all, South Korea knows that China also has extensive leverage over North Korea. And South Korea wants China to use that power to pressure North Korea into stopping the development of its nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles program. So these are two things that are very important to South Korea. Um, and both of these factors make, it, make South Korea very reluctant to anger China um, in any way because of the fear of retaliation and China's refusal, refusal to help more on North Korea. And I think on the other hand, Japan is much more, is less worried about angering China and is able, therefore, to tolerate more risk in China-Japan relations. And that, of course, makes for a different sort of set of circumstances between uh, Japan and South Korea to begin with. So fundamentally, I don't think that this strategic calculus, South Korea's strategic calculus, is uh, changed very much because of the Chinese retaliation over THAAD. The economic relationship between China and South Korea is still a fundamental cornerstone of South Korea's uh, export-oriented economy. Um, but what we have seen is a shift in public opinion uh, with regards to China in South Korea. Um, according to a recent poll by the Asan Institute, the public now sees the relationship as more competitive, that is the China-South Korea relationship, as more competitive than cooperative, and that's a change from last year. 
The favorability rating of China and President Xi Jinping also fell substantially from January uh, to March of this year. So we can see that South Koreans overall see China in a less favorable light. So what does that mean in terms of policy? Um, it looks like based on both market factors and a shift in public opinion towards China, we might see South Korean businesses try to overcorrect for the uh, dependence, the current dependence on China in terms of economic trade. So they might try to diversify their trade relations, business relations with other countries in the region like India and Vietnam going forward. So that's one thing we might look for. And I think this was probably bound to occur anyway because of the decreasing profitability in the Chinese market for South Korean businesses and also the sort of growing resentment uh, that South Koreans have of the Chinese re economic retaliation over THAAD. So this might have catalyzed greater amounts of political will for the change overall in the relationship to happen in the long term. In the short term, it's probably not going to create a lot of great change, but we could see some things happening over the long term. Looking to the future of Japan-South Korea relations, a key moment played out in recent weeks. Following Pakune's impeachment, South Korea's new president, Moon Jae-in, took office on May 10th following a special election. Moon has already dispatched a special envoy to Japan to meet with the Japanese Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. Lisa Collins describes what the election of the progressive candidate means for Japan-Korea ties. What we know about Moon Jae-in so far is what he said publicly about the Comfort Women agree Agreement and also the Information Sharing Agreement. What he said about the Comfort Women Agreement is that he's probably going to roll that back. Um, and he said about the Information Sharing Agreement that they'll take another look at it and then decide afterwards. So it really depends on his stance and then the stance of An Chorsu. If South Korea were to cancel either agreement, it would have a very substantially negative impact on South Korean-Japan relations. Um, overall, it would also not be good for current security dynamics, and also um, it would put a greater strain on U.S. ROK relations going forward, I believe. Um, right now, South Korea is already in a politically vulnerable position because of the political scandal that occurred with President, former President Park Geun-hye um, that's lasted about six months or so. It's left a political vacuum in the country. Um, it's made it very difficult for there to be very productive um, progress made in the relationship with the U.S. and the Trump administration and also with other countries in the region. So I think that canceling those agreements would put South Korea um, on the wrong footing with both Japan and the U.S. going in to a new administration, and unfortunately, um, that's a time when they would probably need as many good friends as possible. Um, I think it would also make cooperation with the U.S. more difficult um, because both Japan and Korea may look to the U.S. to take sides, um, which is something that the U.S. will not do and would be very, very reluctant to, uh, to be pressured with at the, at the beginning of a new administration. Um, and also, I, I believe that having two allies fighting with each other is almost like having two family members fighting and not speaking with each other. You want to try and get them in the same room to talk to each other and communicate the same message. But when they're not on speaking terms, you can't get them together in the same room. And I think, unfortunately, that has very um, negative impacts on developing policy together and coordinating uh, strategy going forward. So I think that that would overall just raise the potential for miscalculation and conflict among the different uh, countries in the region. And it would it'd make it difficult for the allies that, in a trilateral setting to uh, coordinate policy and strategy. Um, so I think it would overall make things more difficult. 
And what about the looming threat from North Korea, which has continued ballistic missile testing and provocations in recent months? What tools in terms of security cooperation can the Republic of Korea, Japan, and the United States bring to bear on this issue? Nishino-san explains that Japan-South Korea security cooperation has been relatively consistent, but often facilitated by the United States. Uh, yes, uh, we three countries uh, finalized uh, TISA in 2014, and actually Japan and South Korea uh, signed uh, information sharing agreement, bilateral information uh, sharing agreement, so-called Jisomia. And, uh, but actually, uh, we also are facing uh, challenges in dealing with North Korea. Uh, in, past so, in past 10 years, uh, we have seen convergence of the North Korea policy between Japan and South Korea uh, due to North Korea's uh, very rapid nuclear and the missile uh, development. But looking back, uh, Divergence of diplomatic approaches and policies between Japan and ROK toward North Korea, especially during the 2000s, made it difficult for both governments to work together closely on the North Korean nuclear issue, especially in the six-party talks process. So there was friction between ROK's policy on North Korea, which emphasized a dialogue to change the North Korea's attitude, and Japan's policies which advocated applying greater pressure on the North Korea. So this disagreement allowed Pyongyang to take advantage of the gap to extract more concessions in the six-party talk process. So different perceptions on China's presence and role in North Korea issue have also undermined the cross-cooperation between Japan and ROK, as I mentioned before. So from the South Korean perspective, China is an important stakeholder in the future of the Korean Peninsula as an ally and a partner of North Korea, and more importantly, as a signatory of the Korean War Armistice in 1953. So in other words, China's endorsement is indispensable for the Korea's unification. So this was one of the reasons that the former President Park Geun-hye tried to upgrade the ROK-China relations. But Japan saw this move very critically as South Korea's tilting toward China. So it seems that China's strong opposition and economic retaliation against, against current deployment of the uh, third system on the, on the peninsula maybe will change South Korean uh, perception towards China factor in the North Korean issues. However, uh, it remains to be seen whether this will realize similar cooperation, uh, not only between but Japan and South Korea, but also among US, Japan, and South Korea. So actually, despite the historic animosity between Tokyo and Seoul and the different perception uh, over China, uh, the US-Japan-ROK trilateral security cooperation has continued and gradually developed in order to address the North Korean continuous provocation. The three countries have held trilateral defense ministerial meeting every year since 2010 on the sideline of the Sangria Dialogue in Singapore. At the working level, the three countries have conducted the joint naval search and rescue exercise, so-called SARX, since the late, late 2000. Especially after the Chonan and Yonpyeondo incident in 2010, the Japanese Self-Defense Force 
officers observed the U.S.-South Korea joint military exercise. Likewise, South Korean military officers observed U.S.-Japan joint military exercise in December 2010. So in both cases, actually, the United States invited uh, Japanese and ROK military officers in each exercise. The Trilateral Information Sharing Agreement, so-called TISA, concerning the nuclear and the missile threat posed by North Korea, finalized by three uh, defense authorities among US, Japan, and ROK uh, in December 2014, will allow for a more effective response to future provocation and the dr during contingencies. The three nations conducted Pacific Dragon exercise in accordance with this TISA, which is, which is a trilateral ballistic missile defense tracking event between U.S. Navy, Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, and ROK Navy. So this, this exercise focused on improving tactical and technical coordination among its participation, uh, including the detection, tracking, and reporting of ballistic targets. So it is notable that as a new trilateral cooperation mechanism, among the U.S., Japan, ROK, the Trilateral Vice Foreign Ministerial Meeting established in April 2015 and have held six times uh, since 2015. The fact sheet delivered in after six meeting in uh, January this year stated that three countries have coordinated not only in responding to the growing nuclear and the ballistic missile threat from North Korea, but also in making joint effort to address a range of regional security issues and working together to force innovative approaches to help address global priorities, such as space and cybersecurity, cancer research, and women's empowerment. So it's true that the most important agenda for the trilateral cooperation is North Korean threat, but evolution of cooperation among three countries has made it possible to expand the arena for future further cooperation. What could that future cooperation look like? Dr. Nishino points to non-traditional security as an area for growth. So uh, again, uh, to move forward in our uh, trilateral cooperation or bilateral security cooperation, uh, I would say uh, we can cooperate more, especially on the non-traditional uh, security uh, issue. Uh, security cooperation between Japan ROK, especially, uh, should be expanded beyond traditional security and the military issues. So both countries can cooperate more uh, on issues and areas such as uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, so-called HADL, the peacekeeping operations, capacity building, and human security. So in terms of this kind of uh, aspect, actually uh, AXA, Acquisition and Cross-Service Agreement, it could be useful too to realize uh, Japan ROK cooperation in the domain of non-traditional security. Uh, actually, non-traditional security cooperation is the areas where Japan and South Korea can and should promote substantial cooperation 
and involve other regional actors, such as Australia and the ASEAN countries, as well as the United States. And this will contribute to foster regional cooperation in East Asia. What are the benefits that a constructive working relationship between Japan and South Korea offer the United States? Lisa Collins analyzes the advantages. Um, so I think there are a number of things that are advantageous when there's a good uh, Japan-South Korea relationship. I think one of those is, um, as I mentioned, um, having coordinated strategy planning. That's important, and also information sharing. So for example, when North Korea does a missile test um, and the missile components land in the, sea, in the, in the waters around Japan, um, and Japan collects that information, and they can share it with other countries in the region like the US um, and South Korea. But when there's strains in the relationship, Japan is much less likely to share um, information with South Korea. And that can have a negative effect on planning for um, deterring the North Korean threat over the long term. Um, and then I think in general, uh, there are a number of other issues, trade issues that they may want to work on in the future. For example, another version of TPP. Um, uh, and I think if the uh, South Korean-Japan relationship is not on good terms, then it overall makes um, policy coordination very difficult. As Tokyo and Seoul continue to try to work through their historical tensions while tackling regional security challenges, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. To learn more about this topic, look for a link to Dr. Junya Nishino's Strategic Japan Working Paper in the show notes. Special thanks to Lisa Collins for providing her analysis. The audio for this podcast was edited by Liz Mays. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look CSIS.org and KajitAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, now in five languages, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature. Also be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on the One Belt, One Road initiative. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.